So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working in the Old Testament, so you know within the Bible you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. And within the New Testament, there is a section of wisdom literature that's designed to, to lead us on the paths of wisdom, knowing that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And we've said that within the wisdom literature of Scripture that Ecclesiastes is in conversation with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is essentially saying, here is a, a pattern of wise living. If you generally do these things, generally good things will happen in your life. And that's a good thing, to study those right patterns. But then Ecclesiastes throws the grenade in the midst of that and says, yeah, but if you do all the right stuff, does it even matter at all? And, and so then it, it moves us beyond this life to the consideration of eternity, the consideration of hope. Where is true and lasting hope and meaning and purpose found? And so today we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to actually be looking at verse 7 through verse 12. The, the rest of the chapter is printed in your order of worship, but we're going to be looking at those verses today. So again, this is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need of the wisdom of your word. Lord, we have foolishness and folly within our hearts. We see foolishness and folly in the world around us. And so, Lord, we need you to lead us in the paths of wisdom for the sake of Christ's name. And Lord, we ask humbly that you would use this text again as you illuminate our hearts to, to understand uh, to be able to reflect on the hope that you have given us in Christ. So we need your guidance. Please guide my words and that they'd be true to your word. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme that we're looking at today from this text is isolation. It's confronting isolation. How do we confront it? And the first thing that you notice as you look at this text in verses 7 and 8 is a description of isolation. Look again at verse 7. 
Solomon says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And so here you see this, this man, this man in isolation, a man who is completely and utterly alone. It, it says that he has no other, either son or brother, isolated from community, isolated from fellowship. But it seems that he has a stunning work ethic. It says that he's constantly toiling, depriving himself of pleasure. Implicit in it is that he's accumulating great wealth. He has possessions. I couldn't help think of the image of Ebenezer Scrooge from Charles Dickens. Somebody who is working, has an amazing work ethic, is piling up money, lending it out, but yet has no one completely alone. And in the end, he's miserable. And that's why Solomon says this also is vanity and an unhappy business. It's the, the picture of isolation that we see here in our text. But we know that it's not just Ebenezer Scrooge, but yet the sense of isolation, this reality of isolation is something that we face. We face it in our lives, but it's something we see in the world around us today. And it's something that actually has been growing and deepening in the last few years, but I would say for the last hundred years, there has been a deepening of isolation within Western culture. And I think that there are at least three reasons for this deepening isolation. One of the most recent is the pandemic, the, the global pandemic, which has exacerbated the sense of loneliness and the sense of isolation. This is from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It says, our new report suggests that 36% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. Not surprisingly, loneliness appears to have increased substantially since the outbreak of the global pandemic. And they, they call it an epidemic of isolation, an epidemic of loneliness. So it, the pandemic has been deepening this sense. But there's another reason for this, this deepening sense of isolation. And it's really flowing out of modern innovation, modern technology, modern ways of living. And this is what I was saying isn't just a recent development. You can think of the rise of the automobile. I think everybody in this room was born after the invention of the car. But yet, think of how in the old days, before the invention of cars and automobiles, that if you wanted to go somewhere, you had to walk. And if you're walking, you're running into people on the street. You're having conversations. Even on a horse, probably, you're having more social interactions than you have by yourself in a car driving alone. And so the car has been a blessing, but it's also fueled this sense of isolation and then coming out of the invention of a car, there's the invention of the suburban community. And there's blessings of a suburban community, but also it can be isolated because not only do you have a car, but then you have a garage, you drive into your garage, you never see anyone, you never interact with anyone, you can be alone. 
And then adding on top of that, you have the invention of the internet. And that also brings isolation. And it's ironic because we talk about the internet, that we are a connected age. We're, we're more interconnected than at any point in history. And yet at the same time, also more alone than any time in history. There's social media that comes out of the internet, which we know from research can be isolating. It's really an anti-social media quite often because you have this illusion of community and this illusion of connection, but yet you're alone by yourself. Or you have online shopping that you don't even need to go to a grocery store. You don't even need to go to Target or Walmart anymore where you actually inter interact with real humans, but just Amazon comes and drops it off at your door. You don't even have to interact with the delivery person. And then also I think there's been the rise of individual entertainment, especially through the internet, where it maybe wasn't great when Americans watched TV all the time, but at least the TV would often be in the living room and the family would watch TV together. But now you can have your own device and everybody in the family can go into their own room and watch their own TV show and, and binge their own shows alone, cut off from even those within their own household that it, it's isolating. And then you add on top of that pornography, which isolates people from real, true, meaningful relationship. And so again, we said there's the global pandemic, there's modern innovation, especially the internet. And then the third factor, I think, in this deepening sense of isolation is the breakdown of traditional institutions. So you could think of the traditional institution of marriage that Increasingly, people are delaying marriage or putting off marriage compared to former generations. And then when people do get married, they don't tend to stay married in the same way that they did in former ages. And that contributes to the sense of isolation, that people are alone. And similar in terms of the breakdown of institutions, you have the, the breakdown of civil civic organizations. Recently at the Presbytery meeting, the, the gathering of elders and pastors in our area, they read a tribute to a, a ruling elder at a Presbyterian church in our Presbytery who had passed away. I think he was in his 90s uh, when he passed. Uh, but as they walked through the story of his life, I was really struck by this older sense of civic connection that people had that was instilled within people. Because he was a, an elder at his church. He was a leader in the Rotary Club. He was on the board of numerous organizations. He ran a business. And, and he went down the line. He was incredibly connected and relationally intertwined within his community. But then you look at that and you say, that's not a value for Gen Z or for millennials and even increasingly not a value in the baby boomer generation either, or Gen X. You go through the, the generations that we're, we have lost the sense of connection to civic organizations that provide this, this bond, a sense of fellowship, of purpose. You say, well, okay, so there's a, there's a deepening sense of this isolation that we feel within us. But does it matter? Maybe it's fine. Maybe there's no problem to face this kind of isolation. We can just have isolation. It's not a problem. But according to modern science, isolation is profoundly dangerous. Listen, this is from the CDC's website, their page on isolation. It says, this is quoting from the CDC, it says, 
social isolation significantly increases a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Social isolation was associated with a 50% increase of the risk of dementia, poor social relationships characterized by social isolation or loneliness was associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% risk of stroke. Loneliness was associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. And so this is, this is serious business. And of course, I, I read that if you're feeling alone today, not to make you feel bad, but, but more, I think, for all of us just to see how how serious a matter this is, that, that we're not just talking about something that is a nice benefit or that just makes us feel slightly better. But even if we're just thinking about something as basic as our, as our physical health, that isolation is dangerous. And that's not to mention the spiritual detriment that we'll talk about in a moment, that, that just practically mental health, physical health, spiritual health, that it's not good to be alone. And that's why you think all the way back to the beginning of creation. You read the creation narrative in scripture. And God keeps saying, it is good. It is good. And then he creates Adam. And he places him in the midst of the garden. And then the very first time that it says something is not good, it says in Genesis 2, 18, it says, it is not good that man should be alone. And so the, the problem of human isolation predates the problem of sin. The, the, the problem of human isolation was there before there was any entrance of sin into the world, yet God says it is not good that man should be alone. And that's why Aristotle calls us the social animal. And that's why, as we look at our text today from the book of Ecclesiastes, this isolation equals vanity, and an unhappy business. And so that's the problem of isolation, the problem that we see here in our text. Maybe you are feeling the weight of that problem and that isolation today. But then you ask, is there a solution? Is there a way to be truly connected to others to overcome the danger of isolation. And that's what we start to see in verse 9 to 12. We see the solution for isolation. So look at verse 9 there. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Which is almost a funny, what's the solution for isolation? At least one other person. <laughs> two is better than one. You have two, you're not isolated anymore. So it's, we can end our sermon today. Just to bring another person, that's the end of isolation. But obviously it's not that, that simple. We're saying two is better than one. But then following, he, he lays out a, sense, a, a series of illustrations of why this sense of community, the sense of fellowship, the sense of camaraderie matters. So look at the first illustration in verse 10. He says, for... If they fall, so if there's two, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. 
And I think the setting here that you can imagine is the desert. I was, I was just talking to Marwan about seeing, he showed me a picture of them riding in the Jordanian desert on camels. Uh, and, and that is the picture that you can have. Maybe ask him afterwards to show you that picture, and that's what you can visualize here. But, but you're out by yourself in the, the desert of the ancient Near East, and you're alone, completely alone. What happens if you fall down? What happens if you break your leg? What happens if you fall into a pit? What happens if you fall into a crevasse? That it's, it's dangerous to be alone. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And you know, if, you, if you've been involved in nature activities, uh, wilderness activities, this is number one safety for going out into nature. Bring a hiking buddy with you. Don't go out alone. Bring someone else with you. And you may remember something that was in the news back in 2003, if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, and there, there was a, a man in Utah who went out hiking and climbing by himself. And, and as he was going down a rock face, a, a large boulder shifted and pinned his wrists down. And then he was there for five days trying to, to get out of it, but he couldn't get out by himself. I called Jonathan to ask him if I could share this story, if it was too uh, horrific for church, but uh, he said I could. So uh, but so he basically had to amputate his own hand, uh, and then he had to rappel down a 65-foot cliff, hike seven miles to make it to safety. So there was a happy end of the story. But you think of that, that, that vivid image of someone who is alone, that, that it would be... If he had been with another, that the, the solution would have been so simple. Somebody would have gone to get help. Somebody would have pushed the rock off of his hand. That there would have been an easier solution, but he almost died because he was alone. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, has not another to lift him up. That that's the image of the safety that comes through being with others in the desert. But then notice that Solomon moves to a second image in verse 11. And I think that we can maintain our, our de desert image, traveling in the desert. He says, again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And sometimes this is read at, at weddings, and it's not a bad application, but I think that these first three images here actually have more to do with desert survival than marriage. That, that what this is describing is, again, a survival tip, that if you're out in the desert, it's hot during the day, cold at night, um, maybe you're in the mountains, but maybe it gets extremely cold, you could freeze to death. You could be exposed to the elements. If you're by yourself, there's very little you can do if you can't start a fire. But then this is coming from a survival website. It says, if you find yourself in the cold, it says, cozy up with a partner. If you're getting seriously cold, this is the most effective way to get warm. It is no time to be shy or reluctant. So there you go. No time to be shy or reluctant. If you're going to die of exposure, cozy up with a partner. And that's a, a survival tip. That's very practical. You don't want to be alone in the cold. But the third image is continuing this, the, this desert imagery, verse 12. And though one might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. So you can think of the, the parable of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the man whose help was traveling alone to Jericho, going down from Jerusalem with 
assaulted on the way, was robbed, was left for dead, that there is a sense of of safety in numbers, that if you're facing the, the desert bandits, that they're less likely to strike if you have another person with you. And this is, again, basic practical survival skills. And this is the college survival skills. This is from a college website. It said, always have someone or a group of people that you trust to travel with at night. There truly is safety in numbers, especially at night. And they didn't quote Ecclesiastes 4.12, which I'm very disappointed. But they could have, because this is saying that, that there is safety in numbers, that, that you, when you are with others, there's security. But then there's the, the fourth image. And the fourth illustration is, it's more of a, just a picture in a, in a way that's different from the others, but it says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And my, my mom, who, who's here today, has a, has a spinning wheel at home. And so if you spin one piece of yarn, it's very easy to break. If you spin another piece and then you ply them together, it's stronger. If you then spin another piece and ply the third one together, it becomes quite strong. And we know that, that the more strands you have in a rope, the stronger the rope becomes. And that's the image here for relational connection. The more cords you have, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The more relational cords that you have in the life, the stronger that you can be. And so as I was reflecting on this, I thought, well, what are the relational cords that we have in life? I could think of at least five relational cords that we have in life. So I'm going to walk through these, and and as you'll see, the order actually matters. So here's the first relational cord that we're called to cultivate our relationship with God. That we're called to cultivate our relationship with God. And this is the first most important priority. This is the first relational cord that we have in life. Because who will be there to pick you up when you fall? Who came into the world to deal with the fall of humanity into sin? Who is there to to warm our hearts, that we have cold hearts of stone? Who can bring our hearts from spiritual death to spiritual life? Who is it that will never leave you or forsake you? Who is with you to to the end of the age? Who is there to protect you? Who is the only one that can be there in your darkest moments. Your friends aren't always going to be there. Your family's not always going to be there. But we have a God who is all-powerful, who is all-present. And that's why our friendship with God, our relationship to God, is number one. And that we enter into that relationship with God as we repent of our sins, as we trust in Christ alone for salvation, we are then brought into this union with God But then throughout our life, we have this deepening sense of communion. We we grow deeper in our love and our relationship, our fellowship with God. As we are in his word, we learn more about him. As we're in prayer, as we're talking to God, as we're gathering with his people, celebrating the sacraments together, that we grow in our relationship with God. And so as you think about your life, that's the number one thing to put into your schedule. How are you cultivating your relationship with God? Because that is the number one cord that will keep you strong in life. The first relational cord. But then here's the the second relational cord. That we're called to cultivate our relationship with our spouse. That 
we're called to cultivate our relationship with our spouse. So this is Genesis 2.18. Remember, I quoted this a moment ago. God saw Adam alone. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And at that time, his, his solution for the problem of isolation was the beginning of the institution of marriage, creating this complementary pair, husband and wife in marriage, and that, that is someone there who can be there to, to pick you up when you fall down, someone who can be there to keep you warm in the cold, someone who can give you strength in numbers. That's why, I don't know how many of you had this read at your wedding, but this is read at a lot of weddings for that very purpose. And so if you're married, you may know the, the beauty of that relationship, the, 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 the glory of having that antidote to isolation. But then it's also why, why the, the cultivation of the marriage relationship is number two, that God is number one, but the marriage relationship is number two if you're married, because... We shouldn't sacrifice the marriage relationship for anything else. Again, God is first, but marriage is second. Because to sometimes pastors will sacrifice their marriage for the sake of ministry, but that undermines the ministry. Sometimes parents will sacrifice their marriage for their children, but then the, when the marriage breaks, that's a, not a great environment for the children. That one of the best ways to care for your children is to keep a healthy marriage. People will sacrifice their marriage for friends or for habits or for sin or for addiction, that, that we, we undermine the institution of marriage. But this is saying that as we seek to cultivate a relationship, this is number two. It's number two next to God. But marriage is hard. And if you're struggling in your marriage, talk to me. Seek help within the church because there is support to help strengthen and grow in your marriage. But of course, I also know that, that some of you are not married for various reasons. Some of you are not married by choice. And some of you are not married by in, events that happen to you that are completely outside of your control. You think of Jesus, the only perfect human being in history, was unmarried. The Apostle Paul, the greatest leader of the church, was unmarried. And so if, if God is first, and if you're married, marriage is second, well, then where does someone turn for that, that, for another cord in their life, this relational cord, if they're married, if they're not married? And this is where the, the third relational cord comes in as well. So here's the third relational cord that we're called to cultivate our relationship to our family, to our family. And so again, if you're, if you're married, it's God, marriage, and then family, and if you're unmarried, it's God and family. That, that there is something significant about family, that God gave us family. He instituted the family. You could think of parents, honor thy father and thy mother, children, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins. You go from the immediate family to the extended family. And I mean, you could think of if you, the mafias, you know, family's everything, and, and, and they... <laughs> There, there is a sense of them being right. They probably idolize the family and place it above human life and basic dignity. Uh, uh, but they're, they're, they are seeing something true, that, that family isn't everything. God is number one. But yet family is a gift from God. It's important that there are people who can pick you up when you fall in the, the desert of life, people who can keep you warm, people who can 
be safety in numbers. And that's why, if you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, we, we read that we, we studied this a few months ago. It said, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so it's saying that, that what's the, the first line of defense against the isolation for a widow? He's saying that, that the first line of defense is the family. The second line of defense is the church if the family is not there. But it's the gift of the family that God ordained for a purpose. This is part of the reason that we are to cultivate relationship with our family. And that's hard. It can be really, really difficult uh, because we know that, that often our family relationships are the ones that, that follow us the longest through our life, but they can often be the most difficult. There can be the most conflict. We can say things to our family that we wouldn't say to anyone else in a bad way sometimes. Um, but then there could be the sense of pursuing that, spending more time with family, pursuing reconciliation with them if possible, love, grace. But then I also, just as I said, I recognize that there are some who are unmarried here. I know that there are some without family here as well. And there, there are some who are alienated from their families and there's no hope of reconciliation. There's, there's some who have abusive families, dangerous families. And in that case, the advice would not be, be with a dangerous family. So then you go back to the, to the list. You say, God, if you're married, marriage. If you have family, family, you don't want to sacrifice your family, but then what happens if you don't have family? Where do you turn? And this is where then we come to the, to the next chord, that we are, this is the fourth relational chord, that we're called to cultivate a relationship with believers in the church. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if you think about life as a journey, think of Pilgrim's Progress, the life, Christian life is a journey to the celestial city, that we're, we're passing through the desert of this life, and the same principles that apply in desert wilderness safety apply in spiritual desert safety as well. That if you're out in the, the literal physical desert, that you need somebody else there in case you fall down, in case you hurt yourself physically. And that part of the role of the church is to be the people there who when you fall down spiritually, when you fall into sin, who are accountability, when you fall into, when you, when you're, when you fall down, you don't think you can stand up again, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who can help lift you up. Woe to the person who is alone, who falls and has no one to pick them up. But then also we said if you're in the desert, you need the, the heat, the mutual heat of someone else on a cold night. But then we are in a cold world spiritually. Who is going to keep you warm spiritually? And maybe you've heard there's a very famous sermon illustration. It's one of those sermon illustrations that I wonder if it actually happened, if it just gets passed around among pastors, but it's a good image. Um, it was about Dwight L. Moody, and he went to visit a parishioner at his church in Chicago, cold, windy night in Chicago. And he 
I went into the man's living room, and the man said, I don't need the church. I can follow God completely alone. I don't need anybody else. And according to the story, Moody went over, took with tongs, pulled a coal out of the fire, set it on the hearth, and they just sat there silently as the flame went from the warm orange to kind of a gray and eventually it went out completely. And then the parishioner said, I understand. I'll see you in church next Sunday. Uh, but I think that, that that is a good image. On the cold night of the world, who is going to keep us warm? And, and that there is this spiritual warmth that we have in fellowship with other believers where, where our affections are warmed towards the Lord. Our love for the, for the Lord is flame. That's why it says in Hebrews, can, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, that we need to be stirred up by the fellowship of believers. But then you remember that third image that we said that you need the mutual protection of the Christian community. That's true in the desert, that you're, you're more exposed to danger alone. And that's true in the spiritual life as well, that if you're walking the spiritual life alone, you're more in danger to spiritual bandits, to false teaching, that you're more susceptible to spiritual wolves that would come in and try to devour the sheep. And that's why Thomas Watson one of the great pastors and theologians of the Puritan era, said this as he was commenting on the Lord's Prayer. He said, It is no wisdom in fighting with an enemy to give him the advantage of the ground. We give Satan advantage of the ground when we are alone. Eve was foiled in the absence of her husband. A virgin is not so soon set upon in company. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two are better than one. Get into the communion of the saints, and that is a good remedy against temptation. That you say, I want a good remedy against temptation. He says, get into the community and the fellowship of the saints. And that community and fellowship of the saints, it, it begins with something as simple as coming to worship where you're with other believers. I mean, but tied to that is even the, the old-fashioned idea of the Lord's Day, the idea that you work six days and you set aside a day for rest day you can be with your family, a day you can be with the church, a day you can worship. When are you actually able to cultivate your relationship with God, to cultivate your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And God actually laid out a way in Scripture to block out time to do that. And so when we, when we come to worship, it's not just this time, the teaching time, but also the time after the service, the time before the service is important as we're with other believers. When you come to Sunday school, it's not just the teaching, but it's walking back into this room with others as you're talking, that, that this is part of how we are warmed and brought into fellowship with other believers. Uh, it's when you participate in the prayer gathering, like we, we have this afternoon or, or in Connect Group, that, that these organic times of interaction bring us into community with others. It, it breaks down the problem of isolation. And so as you think about this, then remember I gave the order, and I struggled where to put the church in the order. And maybe you, you thought, why did Will put the church below the family? And, and I, the way that I, I think the church fits into this is that the church is really the, the fallback for each of the relationships. That if you're struggling in your relationship with God, saying, God, I, I'm just having a hard time following you that you can fall back into tangible relationships in the church, saying, help me follow God. If you're struggling in your marriage, you can fall back into relationships in the church. Help my marriage be healthy. If you're struggling with 
family. You can fall back into the church family. But then you say, well, what if I'm struggling with the church? What if that's where the conflict is? Well, then that's where you go back to the top, that God is the top. God, that's the number one relationship, that you always have God. So even when the church fails and when it will fail and it does fail, you have God as the number one. And so then as you think about this, I've, I've mentioned four, and I think there's one more relational strand that I just want to mention, this, the relational cord, that we're called to, to cultivate relationship with our neighbors. Uh, that, that as we cultivate relationship with our neighbors, this is something we do for, this, for their sake because we're called to be our witnesses of Christ in the world. But in a sense, we do it for our sake as well. Maybe not for a selfish way. It could be selfish, uh, but hopefully not selfish. Uh, that, that there's something about when you know your coworkers, when you know your physical neighbors, you say, I'm going out of town. Can you keep watch on things? You need to borrow something. You can go to a neighbor. That there's, there's safety and benefit from actually knowing the people who live around you, to being in relationship with them. And that's something we are called to do. So again, God, spouse, family, church, neighbor. And I don't want to read too much into the wording of our text to, to read more of it than Solomon intended, the Holy Spirit intended in inspiring this. But I, I did think this was interesting that I can think of these five relational cords, but he says a threefold cord is not easily broken. And you think about it, not everybody has family. Not everybody has marriage. Everyone can have a relationship with God if you repent and trust in Christ. Everyone can pursue fellowship within the local body of the church. Everybody can pursue community within their neighbors and their friends and their families and to seek that, that fellowship and their connection. That, that There you have the threefold cord that is not easily broken. And if you find yourself with one of the cords, then that's your next action step. Is How do you begin to cultivate, to put in time and energy to maybe mend up so sure up your marriage or sure up your relationship to the church or sure up your relationship to your family. It could be different for different people. But in the end, we know that no matter what, we have the Lord. And that's why, and this is where I'll leave you today. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, truly I say to you, there was no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. That our ultimate goal in Christ is, is a time of no isolation, that God himself has exist eternally in the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there is no isolation in God. And that for us, as we're brought into the, the love of the Trinity through Christ, that we can experience that now. But the ultimate goal is no loneliness, no isolation, no more being alone in the new heavens and the new earth. That that's the promise, complete and perfect fellowship, fellowship with God and fellowship with each other in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we repent that we so often undervalue others, that we think we can make it alone, that we can, we can work alone, 
that we can be our own masters, we can be our own lords, that we don't need anyone else or anything else. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we would see the, the necessity of connection. And, Lord, we pray that we can be building these relational cords today. I pray for each person here that there can be a shoring up for, for anyone who doesn't know you, that doesn't have that cord of connection to you through Christ, that they would know that, maybe even for the first time today. Lord, we pray for those who are experiencing conflict with family, that you would bring reconciliation and peace. And we pray for those who are struggling in their marriages, that you would strengthen and sure up their marriage, uh, that the marriage could be a reflection of Christ in the church. And Lord, we pray for those who feel alone, who feel like they have no one. And Lord, we pray for Hope Church in particular, that we can be the, the fallback for people. Lord, we pray that we can be the fallback for those who are struggling with God or in their marriage or their family or uh, Lord, we, we pray that we can be a healthy community that, that recognizes the, the, the significance that you are a God of relationship, a God who existed in relationship for eternity, and that we would not undervalue the church, but that as we gather together, we would stir one another up to love and good works. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.